I was asked when I applied for mortgage, please provide three years of tax returns to validate your income. And I said, you've been my bank for 20 years. I've direct deposited every paycheck into my deposit account. Like you shouldn't ask me that. You're listening to Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay, a podcast that empowers financial brand marketing, sales and leadership teams to maximize their digital growth potential by generating 10 times more loans and deposits. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insights series, where James Robert Lay interviews the industry's top marketing, sales, and fintech leaders, sharing practical wisdom to exponentially elevate you and your team. Let's get into the show. Greetings and hello. I am James Robert Lay and welcome to episode 251 of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insight series and I'm excited to welcome Jeff Keltner to the show. Jeff is the Senior Vice President of Business Development at Upstart, who is on a mission to enable effortless credit based on true risk. Jeff is also the host of the Leaders in Lending podcast, and today I look forward to talking with Jeff about the opportunities for financial brands to create and capture when it comes to lending and AI. Welcome to the show, Jeff. It is good to share time with you today, buddy. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Before we get into talking about the trends and the transformations happening around the consumer lending landscape, uh, what's good for you right now? Personal or professional? It's your pick to get started. Uh, what's good? I mean, personal is always guy, you know, kids, family. I was at my uh, my college reunion. I won't give the, the year number, so I won't age myself. But uh, somebody asked, how's, how's life? And somebody else responded, you know, work and kids, that's kind of the whole story. <laughs> but, you know, when, when the family's happy and healthy and, and, and everybody's doing well, that's about all you can ask for, I think. I'm, I'm right there with you. My wife and I, we have four kids that are 12, 10, 8, and 6. And uh, just coming out of the month of October, oh my goodness, October was, I think, the busiest month that we have had since probably 2019, considering the world slowed down for a couple of years. But it was, uh, it was right. a, a wild, wild ride in, in October, but it was a good one. Yeah. And uh, I've got 13 and can be 11 this week. So oh, uh, right, right there. there with you. Not as many. Four, I can't. I, I always say when you have to go from man to man to zone, then you've got a, you've got a challenge when you get outnumbered. So, you, you know, it's a different, different beast. But we have been dividing and conquering my wife and I, because especially for the 12 year old and the 10 year old there, and even the, the eight year old, their activities in school, um, yeah. and sports are, it feels like a, an exponential increase. And, uh, I, I think the good news is, is, is we're unified, um, and working together to, to make the best of, of everything when we can. I think the idea of complexity too, is, is one, you know, if we can, parlay from the home front and kids <laughs> to the world of consumer lending money is complex lending is complex people need need credit people need loans but i want to look at this you know from a from a human standpoint first mm-hmm. even in a digital world the digital lending people still need the human touch and you know that this is a problem that most lenders fail to understand why why is this why do people still need people when it comes to lending in a digital world i mean i think sometimes they do and sometimes they don't i think this is one of the hard balances for any whether it's lending or wealth management or just investment management any kind of um experience is you kind of like you want to be able to self-service sometimes and then when you need a human usually 
I find that that moment is when you don't understand something or something's gone wrong, right? I've got a, I've got a challenge. We see that a lot during COVID. And now as the economy is a little bit more challenging for many consumers, they say, hey, something has gone wrong. Can you help me with a payment plan, a forbearance, a hardship? And I think the the reality is you 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 want to not you don't want to be forced to talk to somebody when you when you're ready to self-serve and you know what you want and you don't want to be forced to try and figure it out on your own when you're not sure what you want or you need help figuring it out and the most successful companies make it easy to avoid talking to a human when you don't want to and and super easy to talk to a human when you do and sometimes we make it the opposite we, we make you talk to somebody when you don't want to we make it really hard to get a hold of the person when you need them and i think that balance is is really hard to achieve but is really important it's two sides of the coin. On one side, it's the complexity. Uh, I've reached a problem. I need help. Mm-hmm. The only way that I can get help outside of that self-serve is, and, and resolve that conflict is by gaining clarity through a conversation or a connection, if you will. It doesn't have to necessarily be a conversation like we're having. It could be chat, et cetera, with, with, a, with another human being. Where, where and when? I think that's a, a great question. Where and when should financial brands focus on human-to-human interaction, and when should they step away and leverage the technology, leverage the self-serve back to your point? I, I think it's, it's going to be it's an interesting question, but I think it's the front and the back where they want to be in, in the middle of it, in the middle where they don't. And so let me maybe describe that a little bit more depth. I'm, I'm having my air conditioning replaced. Do I need a personal loan or should I do a home equity line of credit? I've been told about this cash out refi. Uh, like, well, what are my, why would I do A versus B? You see the same thing on, investments. Do I want a Roth, an IRA, a 401k, a Roth? There's all these things, an index fund. I see Robinhood. And like, what should I be doing, Jeff? What's, what's a savings account and a CD and a mutual fund? And like, what, what is the right choice? How do I think about what I want to do? Right? So I, I feel like that at the beginning of the flow, when someone now sometimes somebody comes to you and goes, I, I got a house, I found it, I need a mortgage. They passed this part, right? They're, they've got it. They want the 15 year fixed, whatever. But I think often many consumers come to us and they're not quite sure what they do. They've got a problem. They don't know the right solution, right? They've got a question. They want help navigating the, the, the universe of options. Then I, I find that once they've determined what they need, they, they want you to get out of the way, right? They don't want to, most people, not always, there's uh, people are there's also just difference between people. But typically once you're in the process of completing an application for a particular product, whatever kind of product it might be, people want to self-serve, right? They want to sit on their couch and they don't want to talk to a human. Maybe maybe cashing checks is the ultimate example. Like nobody wanted to go to the branch to do it. Nobody even wanted to go to the ATM to do it. They just wanted to sit on their couch and take a photo. And that's like, that's better for me for, so that in the middle when I'm kind of transacting. And then I think there's the, um, the end is sort of the beginning, which is A, if I have challenges, let's say with making loan payments, I'm back to that position of saying, hey, I might need some help or some clarif- clarity, or it's my next product, which is like, hey, the, this savings account's going great. It's gotten pretty big. Right. <laughs> Should I be doing something else? Which is kind of the beginning and kind of the end, right? It's it's, it's kind of the end of one product or the, the end of the life cycle where you've gotten into a product, you're using it successfully. Uh, and now it might be the beginning of, a, of another cycle. And so being able to be accessed in that moment when things are going well. Hey, I've got this one loan. I'm paying it off. Well, now I'm thinking about buying a car. That's kind of the beginning of another thing, but you see it because you're interacting with them through the context of maybe the mortgage they have or the bank account they have. And so I think it's that the beginning of the end. Uh, and then I think it can, it can vary by person, right? We still see some people who, who want to talk to a human being, right? They don't, they don't trust the tech and they want to feel like they talk to a human who's answered their questions. And I, I think the more you can get out of the way of letting people who want to self-serve, self-serve, the more you can put your resources towards those people who are either at a moment in time when they need the human touch 
or who just um, for personal personality reasons or whatever, feel like they, they want to have that touch, you know, at some certain point in the process. I think that's where, you know, let's dive a little bit deeper into the opportunities uh, around technology and it could be through two lenses. It can be through self-serve or it could also be from more of a proactive stance utilizing data AI to identify opportunities to optimize the lending experience. And, and I want to cover both points, AI and data, but I want to start with data because I I look at data as like the oil of the digital growth engine. Oil helps to make the engine run smoothly. And, Mm. and, and, and where do you see opportunities, this idea of running smoothly, reducing frictions, where do you see opportunities for financial brands to use data to remove friction from the lending process, the lending experience, both online, but as well as in branch. Cause I think we need to keep, keep, keep both channels in mind right now. Oh, so many places. I actually don't like the analogy of oil as uh, data is the new oil. I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, I feel like da- oil is one of those things that most people don't have. And the presence of it is valuable to you. And data is like the polar opposite in many ways. Like everybody is generating data all the time and having access to data isn't the problem. It's like, it's the refining part. It's the figuring out what my data tells me and how to use it well. That's that's the really hard and valuable part. I think like every financial institution generates so much data and yet they don't actually know how to mine it and refine it and turn it into useful insight. So I think there's a lot of value in it, but I also think a lot of times it's like it's not finding the data that's useful. It's like, how do I, how do I leverage it? Well, I think so that's, I, I, that's a great point. I want to address that real fast because I think data is like ones and zeros analytics begins mm. to visualize that data dashboards etc but then the most important practical point of this is to turn the insight into something that we can take action That's or provide right. recommendations around so i like that point that you're making right here yeah I, I totally agree and so if you ask like where can we use it i mean the number one most easy thing is like what is the product that this customer is most likely to be in need of right now like I, I can't I can't talk to all my customers all the time. And if I could, I certainly couldn't talk to them about all my products. But what is it that Jeff needs or James needs? Like today, what, what should I be talking to them about? Maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's a savings account. Maybe it's a car loan. Maybe it's an investment. I don't know. But if you can reach the right person through the right medium with the right message at the right time, you've got a lot of opportunity. That could be what you're telling. You know, that, that intelligence could be what I'm marketing to them on Facebook, right? Yes. It could be what I'm putting in an email campaign. It could be what I'm putting in front of uh, a customer service agent in a branch to talk to you about when you come in for something else, like opportunities, things that they might think about. Hey, I'm looking at your car loan and you're paying way more than we would offer you. You should refinance that, right? Like that's pretty easy. Hey, I'm looking at your credit cards and I can see on your credit file, you're carrying $20,000 in credit card bills. Have you thought about refinancing that with a personal loan? Whatever that might be, you know, you start, I always, I always, when I do these things, they start at the top of the funnel. How do you, how do people find product? Right. So I start there to use data. How do you get the right product in front of the right person at the right time? Right. You go straight down to like uh, the area upstart really focused, which is the belief that, uh, you know, one of the frictions in the credit system is that we say no to a lot of people right. as an industry. And I, you know, data will tell you, since we're talking about data, we did a little research with some of the credit bureaus and found that 80% of American consumers who've taken out a personal credit obligation have never defaulted on it. And yet less than half of American consumers have a credit score that would qualify them for prime credit. And so what that means is when you use credit scores, or I would argue most traditional approaches to credit, you may achieve the loss rates that you want, but you do it by, by not approving a large number of people who would have paid back given the chance. And that's, that's friction in the process. That's lost economics. 
um, for an institution that's poorly served customers with a bad experience and, and, and a suboptimal relationship. So I think second place you use data is understanding better who you can and, and should approve for loans of different sizes and how you should price those, right? And then next in line to me is like, how do I get you through the process, right? Um, things like how do I do KYC and ID verification? How do I get comfortable with income? There are so many data points available other than what we've traditionally done. And, and so often I see institutions digitizing a legacy process. Like, oh, we've got a digital loan now, that. right? I go, okay, how do you do ID verification? Well, in the branch, we looked at your ID. So now you take a picture of your ID. Uh, how do you do income variable? In the branch, we looked at your pay stub. So now we have you send us your pay stub. And I go, well, have you thought about, you know, doing something that could have lower friction for the borrower? Uh, and there's a lot of data to do that. Even we talk about, you know, the, the data is the new oil concept and, or is it? Often institutions don't even have an automated way to look at direct deposits into their own depository accounts to validate a stated income, right? That's, that's the easiest kind of, that's your data. There's ways to get it from third-party institutions, but even if it's your customer, you know, I was asked when I applied for mortgage, please provide three years of tax returns to validate your income. And I said, you've been my bank for 20 years. Yeah. I've direct deposited every paycheck into my deposit account. Like you shouldn't ask me that. Right. right. And yet they did. And so, you know, can you take that friction out of the process? And then I think that the last one is like when you're in for a loan product, when you're in servicing, right? Where where is someone maybe in a financial distress? Are there signals about what what communication mechanisms work best with different consumers uh, who might be in need of a hardship? Maybe I want to change my reach, outreach, proactively reach out to people who might be struggling. Uh, about forbearance programs, you know, if, if we're in difficult economic times. So there's all sorts of ways you can use data to optimize all the way through there, all the way back to, as we said, the end is the beginning. That customer who got one product, when do I, what is the next product I should be positioning in front of them uh, back to the, the beginning of the cycle. Digital growth is a journey from good to great, but sometimes this journey can feel confusing, frustrating, and overwhelming. The good news is you don't have to take this journey alone because now you can join a community of growth-minded marketing and sales leaders from financial brands and fintechs who are all learning, collaborating, and growing together. Visit digitalgrowth.com insider to learn more about how you can join the Digital Growth Insider community to maximize your future digital growth potential. Now, back to the show. Well, that's where I think, you know, combining first-party digital data, i.e. website data, back to customer data that resides in an LOS or a core uh, and, and connect, or, CRM. or CRM, connecting all of these dots together because you can pick up buying signals from someone's digital exhaust on a website and make totally. some predictive measures and then make some I think it's 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 transforming the operational model in banking, which has historically been reactive, waiting for someone to walk into a branch, waiting for someone to take some type of action, applying online. Mm -hmm. And to your point, it's like taking archaic processes that were built for the physical world and then just re-engineering them for the digital world. It's not an optimization. It's just the the mechanism's the same. Um, I forgot That's where right. where I read this, but it it was a data point that you know. For every 10 seconds added to a digital application experience, it decreases by X percent of conversion. Yeah. And so what are we asking that we don't need to be asking? And I'm curious. It's like, okay, so we have all of this data at our disposal. Um, we have the ability to use AI and ML to you know, get an mm -hmm. augmentation and a, a capability upgrade. What's holding financial brands back from maximizing this potential? 
Well, you know, I'll say two things. I think having all the data and having it at your disposal are two very different things, <laughs> right? So often it is, you know, can I actually connect the data from my website or my mobile app usage with my LOS, with my CRM, mm -hmm. and actually make sense of that data to understand those signals in conjunction? And the answer is often that architecturally, infrastructurally, and the way our technology systems are built, I can't actually, it might take three weeks to have four different analyst groups combine those data out of different databases and collate them with some ID record. And then it's like, oh yeah, we can get you that data in three weeks. You go, I want it in real time in front of my agent. I want it in my targeting algorithm for an ad campaign. Like, So I do think I've often advised the institutions I talk to that one of the areas I see of underinvestment generally is kind of the plumbing, so to speak, yep. for data and technology. Because it's so easy to focus on, did we launch a digital application? Yeah. And you don't ask the question of like, were we able to connect it to you know, I go back to my example of like looking at your bank transactions to validate your income or target an ad, or even as simple as like when I've applied for my mortgage, my bank said, what's the, uh, what's your address? I said, the, the same one you sent my statements to for the last 20 years. Like you should at least have some idea, but those systems aren't integrated, right? That application system was a brand new system that was launched, wasn't integrated into a core or a CRM. And so figuring out how to to weave these things together and give a unified view across them of the data that you have, and then to start to glean insights on top of that data, it, you know, having it and being able to use it in that way, I think are very different. And investment in that kind of the plumbing of connecting these things together and making that data available to the right users at the right time is really important to be able to take advantage of these things. It's not easy. Um, and it's often siloed by our business units, right? Like, this system was bought by the guy who runs the mortgage business, which is different than the guy who runs the credit card business. Yep. They don't, they weren't designed to speak together because we kind of ran as functionally independent groups in many ways. Uh, and now you're saying, well, we should be able to glean insight from A and apply it to B. And like, we got to plug those two things together. So I think that's the, one of the biggest things standing in the way. And then I think the other, and this is maybe not something our audience can, can do something about immediately, but is in certain areas, um, take underwriting, there is some lack of clarity around how certain regulations apply in the context mm. of a machine learning model or the usage of alternative data points. And I, I think they'll be increasingly asked for clarity on what's what's in and outside the bat. Like, you know, certain policies or the way we approach, let's say, fair lending testing was kind of built on the assumption of a scorecard model. And like when you're using an AI model, the scorecard is not there. You have to ask the same question applies, but you need to answer it in a different way. And I think sometimes our institutions are you know, conservative and how they are willing to push the boundaries on the new. And so they tend to say, well, let's wait and see how this plays out over time for other folks. Uh, and so there's a, you know, a hesitance to be first, but I think there's a lot of, a lot of benefit to being early in these things because you, you really differentiate. Well, that's a great point you make on the compliance side, because I, I know when it comes to say AI and lending, there's, there's a big concern around bias in AI models, yeah. considering the fact that, you know, many financial brands will only lend to those that have a credit score of 700 plus. So what are the opportunities here? You know, back to your point about, you know, not just waiting, but, but testing, applying, learning, looking for financial brands to increase the inclusivity of lending by eliminating bias through AI, AI and ML. I, I love the question. Cause I think sometimes we get so wrapped up around fairness and fair lending. And I'm not saying that fairness is a bad thing. So don't let me come off the wrong way there, but you know, I think that fairness can leave out the concept of inclusivity, right? And the idea that we're, you know, if we rely on traditional metrics, like 
the the typical African American does not have as high a credit score as the typical Caucasian American. Same thing is true for Hispanic American. So if we're just relying on credit score and saying that that's already a system that is by and large leaving out disproportionately minority communities um, from access to credit. And, and I think that AI and a better understanding of credit can help us bring those communities back in. And we of course wanna do it in a fair way, but I think sometimes the way we think about fairness uh, can, you know, you say, give the same approval rate for this population, that population. Well, if you're using credit scores, you don't know, you might have a different approval rate on your applicant pool because you just only marketed to the people with a 700 plus. So it looks fair, but it's not really fair because a lot of people never even bother to take the first step and get into the denominator of your test. And so are we really measuring fairness there, uh, but are we really measuring inclusivity, which is where I think you should be. And there's a huge opportunity for AI, alternative data, just new approaches to underwriting to identify those people who traditionally wouldn't give access to credit, be given access to credit and, and show that they are credit worthy and deserve that access to credit uh, and close that inclusivity gap. So we, we believe there's a huge opportunity. And I will just say, you know, one of the first things Upstart did before we even started lending was we called the CFPB and said, we think we can close this inclusivity gap, but there's questions about how to model fairness. And to their credit, the regulators were quite willing to engage in a discussion about how to think about the concepts of fairness in the context of a model like AI. And we built some testing in conjunction with the Bureau. And I think that kind of effort is there. And, and you know, the regulators, frankly, they care about inclusivity. I mean, they they asked us to publish metrics and, and send them data on how much we could increase approvals and decrease cost of borrowing, not just as, as well as, of course, how that was being applied across demographics. But I think there's a huge opportunity for these things to open up the inclusivity of the system to people who traditionally haven't had the same kind of access. Well, that's where, you know, looking at some of this data, the upstart model versus the traditional bank model, there's 75% fewer defaults at the same approval rate uh, when it mm. comes to the upstart model, and then 173% more approvals at the same loss rate comparative to yep. tr traditional incumbents. You mentioned something before about alternative data. What, what should the dear listener be considering here around alternative data when it comes to increasing inclusivity through lending? I mean, I think when I think about alternative data, sometimes it's a scary phrase for people. I was just on, on a webinar with uh, Equifax and some other lenders about, about this topic. And I think sometimes like you're, you're scouring Twitter, maybe not Twitter these days after what Elon Musk is doing, Twitter, Facebook, Meta, or whatever, and looking at these kind of weird signals. And, and I just think there's so much data that's not traditionally used in underwriting, but it's so clearly financial in nature. The kind of job you have, the kind of income you have, transactions in your bank that might be able to indicate income, um, right? Just cash flow based underwriting. Um, even if you just think about the credit file, like most lenders get a handful of variables, maybe a dozen off the credit report. Right. We get over a thousand. And it turns out when you look at all the thousand in detail, you get a much better sense of creditworthiness. Uh, and then there's things you know that are very clearly ought to be uh, in some way in a person's credit history, which is like they've been consistent paying their utilities and their rent and their cell phone bill. Yes. And some of those we're starting to see come into the credit files, but those would all be alternative data points today. And yet I think are clearly financial in nature, clearly have something to tell you about uh, the credit worthiness of a consumer. And I usually think of this as, uh, you know, kind of, can you find other ways to, to demonstrate credit worthiness outside of a credit score, which is typically based on a history of repayment, yes. right? And I'm not, I don't really care about your history of repayment. I, I do, but I really care about what it says about your future, future of repayment. And there are other ways than a history of repaying loans to demonstrate your likelihood to repay. And we're looking for, for all those signals. Where are there some signals that can give us a positive 
indication of someone's likeliness to likelihood to repay that we can use to extend credit. That's a fantastic point because, you know, if we're talking about there's been a big conversation around financial education, I think it's only mm-hmm. one half of the equation. I think financial empowerment or increasing the financial confidence of people through increasing their financial competence, that's kind of more of a holistic view. Back to the point of the internal silos, it's almost like, you know, you've got a cardiologist as, that isn't connected to your neurologist. <laughs> Well, I want both. I want both parties talking here because it's it's the holistic yeah. picture. But then there's this future focused piece of this as well because you know a, a person's past. I don't think should predict their future. It should be the actions and behaviors that they're having in the present moment as a trend towards a bigger future for them. And I like the perspective of alternative. That's why I wanted you to clarify this because I think when you hear the word alternative data, what is that? But I mean, you know, cell phone bills, utilities, rent, those are all predictive patterns of, you know, people who might not necessarily have a, a positive, you know, credit score, quote unquote, that says, Hey, I'm making progress towards creating a bigger future. Can, can you help me out? Can you get me there? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, there's so many ways that could be happening. And, and to your point, like, obviously, all of these are past signals, right? You paid your rent. That's a past action. Like, it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean you'll pay next month's rent. It's probably a pretty good sign. Um, but, you know, you're looking for me. It's, it's interesting because there are alternative data points, yes. But in some ways, no, which is to say many credit policies have, you know, when we have a human loan officer, they often make exceptions and they have these kind of phrases in the credit policy. Uh, unless there are other substantial compensating factors, right? Compensating factors mm-hmm. are, and one of the ways I've thought about, and this isn't strictly technically speaking the way that a system works, but one of the ways you can think about um, alternative data is a systematic approach to compensating factors, right? As opposed to saying, did the loan officer ask these questions and in their judgment were the compensating factors you know, if your credit score is a little below the bar, this one was enough, but it was, if it was farther below the bar, maybe you needed to have three things on, like there's not a systemic approach to using compensating factors in a traditional way, right? Traditionally, it's kind of a human judgment. And you can in many ways think of alternative data and machine learning as a statistically valid way of looking at a universe of compensating factors, figuring out which ones actually tell you enough about likelihood to repay to overcome certain, and then you're really saying, we're just changing our credit policy. As opposed to saying we have a hard cut at X, we're saying, no, we don't have a hard cut at X. We're willing to consider other factors that allow us to go below a certain credit score or a certain debt debt, debt to income ratio when these things are true. And we're not using our intuition about which ones should be right or our personal relationship. We're using statistics to tell us which of these actually are, are substantial enough and predictive value that they can outweigh a low credit score, let's say, in telling us that this person is still likely to repay. It's kind of a statistically valid way of saying, yeah, these things actually outweigh that thing and we should therefore be extending credit to this person. It's a great point about the idea of like, quote unquote, relationship lending, which I know like a lot of community banks, credit unions even have kind of used that term over the years. This is a, statistical. Um, We're we're really relying on the data here through AI and through ML to provide a lot more clarity um, going forward into the future. Speaking about the future, I want to say future focus for just a bit. Mm. The world of lending, it, it has transformed. It will continue to transform, especially when it comes to these two words, embedded finance. Um, the big trends, and I think, you know, as we're looking future focus, what are the big trends that 
financial brands must be aware of and really paying attention to, really watching when it comes to optimizing the purchasing experience for consumers? Well, I, I think the key words are those last ones, the purchasing experience. I mean, I think increasingly, I mean, embedded finances, I think is one of those uh, hides a lot of sense. Like people, people use it to mean a lot of things and it's not yes. always exactly what we mean when we say embedded finance. But I do think that the idea that the technology now allows us to embed a financial experience closer to the point of transaction, right? Be that things like earned paycheck advance or things where I'm moving my financial tracks closer to my employer, right? I'm mm-hmm. moving my paycheck closer out of my bank and into my employer experience sometimes, right? Or whether it's buy now, pay later, or kind of embedded finance on the purchase side. Um, I, we've known this is true for a while. I mean, it's interesting, but like no one, when they want to buy a house, goes to the bank first, right? They, they they call a real estate agent. That's the first call they make, right? And when you want to buy a car, you also don't like call your bank and go, hey, what, what can I afford? Maybe you should, um, but typically we would go onto the website of the OEM and like check out what we want to buy or we go to a dealer and see what's available to purchase. And I think we're increasingly live in a world where you can push the financial transaction closer to that point of purchase, right? The ultimate, like almost all financing it should be said outside of refinancing, personal loans are often refinancing. Yeah. Right? But most things are, you, you don't like, I don't get a car loan because I want a car loan. I get a car loan because I, I want a car. car. Right. I don't get a mortgage because I want a mortgage. I don't want a mortgage. I want a house. And the mortgage kind of gets dragged along. And the more we can move the totality or as much as possible of the lift of blending borrowing experience into that transaction of the thing I'm actually trying to do, um, the more likely that is. And that's, we think of it as a new thing, but if you've bought a car at a dealership in the last 30 years, you've experienced kind of the original form of embedded financing because the lending was taking place at the car dealership, right? You walked out of there with a loan from a local bank. Yep. Um, and so I think that that becoming reality digitally makes a lot of sense, but also in the context of physical retail locations or any, I mean, it's happening in healthcare, right? You're at, at dentist offices, other places. And I think the idea that you you won't necessarily come to a financial institution to transact financially, you might do it in the context of another activity that you're doing, be purchasing something, or you can imagine this on the investment sides as well, uh, where that's going to become the reality. And to me, that means a bank needs to have, saying an API-enabled approach is bad, but needs to be thinking about how they can take their experiences outside of their own owned properties, your website, your mobile app, and embed them either through APIs or embeddable widgets or some sort of experience into different mediums of transaction. I think that's just the reality of what's going to happen. And the people who can do that effectively are going to win the business that happens there. And that creates an exponential growth opportunity, especially for community financial brands that were historically have been um, confined to growth based upon boundaries, zip codes and borders and Mm -hmm. cities. But now when you look at embedded finance, and I think of one organization in particular who has been in our program for the past couple of years, they're a community organization, uh, but they're making now a national play through Dealer Direct um, in a couple of different niche Mm -hmm. verticals, and they're building up the expertise within those niche verticals. So it's becoming a B2B2C model, working with these dealers within these niche verticals uh, to provide almost that you know, real-time financing at the point of purchase based upon the products that these dealers are selling to solve the common pain points of people that historically you wouldn't think about going directly to um, a bank or a credit union to get financing through. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's reducing the overall friction. So I, I like this idea. And I think, the, I think the key point 
and the takeaway of all of this is is continuously be a learner here because the world is evolving. Knowledge is key. Staying aware, and and that's one of the reasons that you know I, I want to bring up your podcast, the Leaders in Lending podcast. Um, got an audience here uh, that might also <laughs> find value um, in in what you're sharing. And if you think about some of the recent conversations that yeah. you have had on your podcast. What's a, maybe a big insight or aha that you can transfer from the Leaders in Lending podcast to the Banking on Digital Growth podcast audience? Well, I mean, I think all the it's interesting. So the Leaders in Lending podcast, I typically talk to bank and credit union executives. Sometimes I now I'm talking to more and more fintech players. And I think this conversation about um, embedded finance comes up a lot. Uh, but the other, I think the insight is this kind of one of our um, one of our guests said it best. I think is that if you were thinking about a digital transformation, without first thinking about a process re-engineering, then you're getting it wrong. That kind of that don't digitize the legacy process. And to me, that's that's the key thing that the 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 real leaders are seeing and doing. And embedded finance to me is part and parcel of that in the sense that um, I think as you engineer your current solutions, I often talk to our teams about um, you know, when you're architecting a solution, there's there's choices that really impinge on your future optionality and there's choices that don't. And I don't care when we're engineering if we have code that gets thrown away in six weeks or six months, right? That's okay. Six weeks may be a little tight, but six months is okay. Um, but you know, if we are architecting so that it's really hard to do one of the things we think we might need to do in the future, that's really tough. Sometimes you make a choice that says, hey, this thing that could have been a six-week project is now a six-month project because we did data engineering wrong or we architected our, our system wrong and we can't support that use case. And I think embedded finance is one of those. We don't know exactly what the winning use cases will be. Uh, and that's the thing. You got to architect the idea that there are use cases you haven't thought of into that. And so that kind of architecture level, the plumbing level thinking about how to build out your systems to support different modes of transaction uh, is really important. And the idea that digital is not the not the goal, right? The goal has got to be improving the customer experience and digital is a part of that, but not the only part, right? There's a process reengineering. I talked to guys, HELOCs take 90 days and it's not because it's not digital. If you do a digital HELOC that still takes 90 days, but it's all on a screen, you haven't really solved the pain point the customer had. And so if you're taking that customer centric approach, um, then you start to go, well, how do I change the 90 into 10? And maybe use technology to do that. But that my objective isn't to make it digital. My objective is to improve the experience of my customer. I think that's the the key thing. And we just, I get lots of examples on the podcast of how people are thinking that way or doing that. But that's the, I think the core insight I've taken away from the conversations. Well, it comes down to putting people at the center of all of your thinking and doing. It's process. I like, I like that. It's, it's process transformation, um, solving the common pe- you know, pain points, causing common people problems. Let's wrap up on this. There's a lot of opportunity. Where do we get started? What's one small step the dear listener can do next to, well, maybe, maybe it is process transformation, uh, to just optimize well, the digital lending experience to maximize future growth? Well, here, here's my one tip to get started. And it's surprising how many, have you done it yourself? Mm. Do you know, like, do you know what it actually is like for a customer? I had a guest recently and she came on, she said, I, you know, she was new at the institution and she said, I just went on and I tried to open all the accounts and it's so rare that, you know, we get caught up in our part of the business and I'm optimizing the call center or the digital experience or the marketing funnel. And how often do we really have a good understanding across our teams of what happens? And 
so much of what causes customers pain is at the edge of these things. It's yes. where the engineering team meets the credit policy team. And you know, if you're sitting in the engineering team or you're sitting in the marketing team or you're sitting in the credit policy team, you don't see it until you take the customer's point of view. And so I, I would just encourage everyone, we actually started doing this for all of our product teams. They have to have a, an internal video demo. Cause some of the things you like credit product, you can't actually go to the end, right? Cause you gotta like, then I got to get a loan. And right. I've done that before to test the product, but like I, everybody may not want to do that. But the idea that we can take any one of our products and go through a video experience of what the consumer experience is from A to B um, and what that looks like and see it and understand it. To me, that's the beginning of everything. And I used to, on Upstart, I used to go through that process three or four times a week, yep. just constantly going through and say, hey, we changed them. I go, oh, Okay, I got now I've frozen my credit now because of all the hacks and I, it's harder to do because I don't my credit score doesn't come up. But you know, the idea that you are centered on your customer experience and to be centered on it, you have to know it. You have to see it and be able to actually tell people here's how it works. That's my first step. Because as soon as you do that, you'll go, here's five things that seem broken. And then that's your first, that's your next step, right? Is like what are the things that seem broken and how do we how do we make those better? Well, I think that right there, it's so practical. And it's one of the reasons that we have now conducted over 1,200 digital secret shopping studies for mm. financial brands on the front end experience. So i.e. website, product positioning, application process, up to the point of, you know, hitting the actual submit button to your point of, you know, getting all those those hits on, on credit. But there's a tremendous amount of insight. I mean, even looking at upstart.com and the way that this is positioned, uh, get a smarter loan, checking your rate won't affect your credit score. What would you like to do? And it's almost like, you know, the experience of someone walking into a branch. How can I help you? Pay off my credit cards, consolidate my debt, refinance my car, something else. And then, you know, one clicks on one of those CTAs and then it asks a question. How much would yep. you like to borrow? It doesn't, it's, and it's one question per screen, which we have found that by asking one question per screen increases the likelihood of conversion because you're reducing the cognitive load of what is being asked. So therefore it doesn't feel so overwhelming. So I think this idea of continuously learning, testing, refining, optimizing is a great way to look at process engineering or process yeah. re-engineering. I will say you're totally right. We, we used to have one big form and we now have, I think it's on mobile and desktop, one question per page. And there are so many instances like that where you know, you'll have a debate about, will A convert better or B convert better? Will customers like this or that? And uh, I think I'm pretty good at this stuff. And what I know is that I'm almost, not almost always wrong. That would be improbable because uh, it would have to be as hard to do as being always right, but that your users will surprise you. And so things like that may be counterintuitive, but you know, there was a saying that attributed to Ms. Marissa Meyer, Google said, you know, um, in data we trust, right? Like, um, so the idea that like, hey, we don't settle disputes here based on like, well, I theoretically think and the consumer and cognitive, you can make the argument of cognitive load. And ultimately the argument of, is it too much cognitive load or not, is not won by an argument, it's won by data. Mm -hmm. It says, well, let's try them both <laughs> and let's see which one converts better. And yeah. that will give us real information. And then you can kind of understand why and maybe apply that logic to something else to make a guess. But the ability to test and iterate is really critical because the only thing that I know for sure to be true is that I will be surprised by the results of tests in the future where I go, huh, that's not what I would have thought. But 
if that's what the data shows me, then I'm going to follow the data down the path of what makes the most sense for my customers. And I think that's why, like, you know, when starting every type of optimization test like this, you know, enter in with a bit of Socratic wisdom. I know I know nothing. Um, and, you know, go in with a with an open mind and in and, and data we do trust. So uh, good thinking. Jeff, thank you so much for the conversation today. What is the best way for someone to reach out, say hello, continue the discussion we started here? I, you know, I'm on several of the social media platforms, but mostly LinkedIn. So, you know, you can find the company at upstart.com. You can find leaders in lending wherever you get this podcast and your other favorite podcasts. And uh, and I'm pretty much uh, easily findable and communicable on, uh, on LinkedIn. So I look forward to connecting with people there. Connect with Jeff. Subscribe to the podcast. Listen to Jeff. Learn with Jeff. Jeff, thanks so much for joining me for another episode of Banking on Digital Growth. Thank you for having me. As always, and until next time, be well, do good, and make your bed. Thank you for listening to another episode of Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay. To get even more practical and proven insights along with coaching and guidance, visit digitalgrowth.com insider to join a community of growth-minded marketing and sales leaders from financial brands and fintechs. Until next time, be well and do good.